one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. then and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 413 for the week of Monday, April 16th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. How's it going there tonight? Great, thanks. And welcome as well, nobody else. (laughs) It's just you and me tonight. Our special guest will rejoin us again sometime in May or June. So don't worry, we have that special guest lined up for you. Yay. And you'll be happy to find out who it is. And Mark is a little busy, but we'll hear <laughs> yeah, something so. special from him later on in this show. So even though he's not here, he recorded something special for us. So let's begin in the meantime with our regular format of news, except it's a smaller roundtable. So here we go. Let's get started then. And the first story, of course, is one that we talked about last week, and that was North Korea planning to launch their rocket, the Unha 3 carrying a supposed weather and observation satellite. Well, the launch went off as planned at 7.39 a.m. local time this past Friday, which was 6.39 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday, April 12th. The rocket launched. However, it was noticed that at about 81 seconds after liftoff, there was a larger-than-expected flare from the rocket, according to ABC News. Now, the actual rocket, or missile as they've been calling it, was tracked by NORAD, a military command which tracks air and space traffic. It tracked it, and it was launched over the Yellow Sea, but there were indications that marked that the first stage of the missile fell into the sea 165 kilometers west of South Korea. And the remaining stages, though, were assessed to have failed, and no debris fell on land, and it is also assumed that nothing went into orbit. According to the NHK television network, they quoted Japanese officials saying that the rocket reached an altitude of about 400,000 feet, or 120 kilometers. It then supposedly split into four pieces and fell into the Yellow Sea. So, their third attempt, and this one was a complete and total failure. So what does this say about North Korea, and how does this change tensions among countries? Well, North Korea has got to stop buying rockets off eBay. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, what does this say? First off, I'm, I'm looking at an article from today's Washington Post, basically saying, saying the, and I'm going to quote uh, from the article, uh, U.S. Ambassador Susan Rice saying that the Security Council, de- Council has deplored this launch and all that. I think Jap- Japan has got a few boats off the off their uh, coast looking around for any debris from this thing, try to see if they can learn what the thing was really, really all about. Um, what does this say? It says that apparently North Korea is just 
going to go ahead and dance to its own beat and wants to go ahead and you know, do what it wants to do. I think we're looking at a sort of a, and I, and I hate to use this analogy, I think we're looking at sort of like a, a spoiled teenager trying to say, you know, hey, look at me. Um, they gave up a, a grand opportunity for food aid here. They really did. Instead, they wanted to show, you know, how, what a, what a, I guess, how big we were and how big we are, so to speak, and, and they decided to go ahead and, and launch this thing in spite of what the world was telling them not to do. So, um, <laughs> where do we go from here? Um, there'll probably be, a, you know, the, there'll be a meeting of the U.S. UN Security Council, and they'll go ahead and pass some resolution deploring the act and all this, but I just don't think it's going to go anywhere. There might be some stronger sanctions. I know the food deal, you know, the U.S. has basically said the food deal is off. What worries me a little bit is what are they going to do to save face? Because that's sort of the big deal in that culture to go ahead and, and maintain that honorable look. So I'm wondering what, A, what they're going to do to save face here. And, and B, I still haven't heard from China on, on any of this. And I may not have been paying attention to the story as much as I should, but I don't know if anybody, you know, Sawyer, I don't know if you've seen any reports. I'm not too sure where China is on this. I did. Okay, I think I found it here. It's from the same article here from the um, uh, Washington Post. Basically, it says, quote, China had worked hard behind the scenes to put together some kind of agreement, but uh, to dissuade North Korea from doing this. In fact, they were working as, as late as around, you know, late February. Um, to hammer out some sort of agreement, but Chinese dis- diplomats were were unable to go ahead and and get that going. So China apparently was was doing something, but they weren't kind of touting their horn about it. Right. According to the New York Daily News, um, a quote from a Chinese official, uh, their foreign ministry spokesperson uh, Liu Weiman said, besides calling for more dialogue and consultations. Um, they said, quote, it has been proven that dialogue and consultation are the only right ways to solve problems. And they then went on to say that China is willing to keep in close touch with all parties concerned to push the six-party talks forward and make unswerving efforts to realize long-lasting peace on the peninsula. It's going to be interesting, though, to see what happens when this finally goes to the U.N. Security Council and says, OK, fine, we're going to, you know, what are we going to do do about all this? And you'll have a big vote saying, OK, you know, you know, yes, we vote against sanctions. And you'll have China, China who has veto power, say uh, no. So, again, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, really, what we're, what's going to happen next? What I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And again, I'm just wondering what the North Koreans are going to do to try to go ahead and wipe the egg off their face. And and uh, that part kind of is a little scary to me. And just to just to remind everybody, we had a hard time getting our stuff off the ground, too, when we first started as well here in the United States. I mean, I still remember Vanguard, you know, going and, and you know, a lot of other vehicles before we got it right. So, you know, this type of stuff takes time. Well, we'll see if anything comes out of this in terms of fallout and if this is a setback for any either of their nuclear programs or any talks with other nations. So that will be interesting to see what happens from there. Indeed it will. And it'll be interesting to hear some of the listeners' thoughts, too, if they want to send us their thoughts on the impact of this. And how do they go about doing that, Sawyer? Oh, that's a good question. You can email us, mailbag at 
TalkingSpaceOnline.com. We have been getting emails from a couple of you guys with your comments about the show. We thank you for those, even if we don't personally reply to all of them. You can also mention us on Twitter at TalkingSpace, or we've continued using our Facebook page once again at Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. All right, now we're already at the end of round one, and Gene, you're going to finish us off on round one. That seemed really quick, right? Yeah, yeah we're going to go <laughs> back to talking about the budget woes here um, and how they're impacting Mars. This past Friday, there was a press event with uh, the science directorate, mainly uh, with uh, former astronaut John Grunsfeld, uh, who is now the, uh, the uh, lead of uh, planetary sciences over at NASA, he is basically saying that we're going to try to go ahead and make sure that, that future Mars efforts basically complement the human side of the house, meaning that uh, he had mentioned that President Obama has a directive that uh, we get to uh, the Mars vicinity, not necessarily landing on it, but somewhere in the Mars vicinity by you know, the 2030s. So what the science director is trying to do is set it up, set the Mars program up so um, they are essentially becoming sort of the tip of the spear or more like our uh, our advanced team. And uh, they also want to involve NASA's uh, technology directorate as well to make sure that they have the proper technologies in place to carry out their missions, which will go ahead and complement the human side of the house. So uh, all three organizations, the Human Space Flight Program, the uh, uh, Technology Program, and the Mars Science Pro- Mars uh, Exploration Program for robotics are all sort of trying to get on the same page and develop a plan that will carry us going forward to Mars. It doesn't look like, although there is one mission, I think there's a discovery mission in the pipeline that uh, – was mentioned for the 2016 opportunity. Uh, we may miss the 2016 opportunity for a landing, but we're trying to formulate a, a mission for the 2018 opportunity and again for the 2020 opportunity. So, uh, of course, Maven is uh, is up next, and I believe that's going to be in next year in 2013. Um, so that mission's unaffected, but uh, we're trying to develop a roadmap going forward that's going to fit within the, con- the budgetary constraints. That's another... Another kicker, as you well know, that we kind of told uh, the European Space Agency that we're not going to participate in ExoMars. The Russians uh, are looking into filling that gap. Uh, there are negotiations in place right now, um, and it looks like that the, the Russians will probably go ahead and and fill that gap in for for the ExoMars project. But um, uh, also, it looks like, too, that they're not going to go ahead and just strictly stick to you know, NASA interior-wise. They want to go ahead and sort of crowdsource this thing. So they're encouraging anybody with any ideas you know, for, for a flight to, to come forward. And that means anybody you know, from academia that has that type of experience or from engineering or from any, any real discipline that, that, that they may have an idea. So please, you know, if anybody's listening out there and they're, they've, they've got a, some sort of scientific background or some kind of engineering background or you've got an idea, you know, NASA's willing to hear it. The idea here, though, again, is that we've got to stay within the, uh, the budgetary constraints. And, and they haven't been pretty, which is why uh, we're regrouping. Um, the roadmap will be presented uh, Oddly enough, uh, the beginning of August, huh, Sawyer, I wonder why that is. 
Uh, no idea. Not like there's any major Mars event occurring in August, right? Nah, you know, no. I think we've got something going to Mars currently. No, uh, not like it's the, um, the Mars Science Laboratory, also known as Curiosity, which is set to land in early to mid-August on the Red Planet. Right, if all goes well, uh, Curiosity should be uh, making its landing on August 6th. Uh, but um, so they're 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 looking at to go ahead and roll this this new roadmap out around this this time period. So again, um, we're, it looks like we're not exactly back to square one, but uh, we're trying to sort of regroup and figure out what we can do with the money we're going to get. So um, this is a story we're just going to have to watch and uh, and see what happens with Mars exploration going forward. Uh, John Grunsfeld is calling the shot, so I've got all confidence in him, and, and I'm sure uh, Sean will formulate something that uh, th- that we can all live with that's going to be exciting, that's going to deliver some good science, that's going to complement the human spaceflight program, that's going to add to our technologies, and uh, hopefully stay within the budgetary constraints. So keeping our fingers crossed. Okay, so with that, boy, that seems fast. We made it all the way one trip around the table. <laughs> Well, then, we can move on to our next story, then. And our next story is about a review that was completed today, a flight readiness review. Now, there are plenty of flight readiness reviews that you might remember during the space shuttle time period. However, this one was for SpaceX and the Dragon capsule. Now, the current plan is for the capsule on top of the Falcon 9 rocket to launch to the International Space Station. That date of launch is currently scheduled for April 30th, and the launch time is scheduled for 12.22 p.m. Eastern, and that was given as an official go today from the Flight Readiness Review. Now, the actual program was originally supposed to be split up into two flights, one that would approach the International Space Station and land, COTS-2, and then COTS-3 would actually do the docking. However, they've decided that... They wanted to combine the two, and NASA gave them the go, and so that is now called C2+. Now, the interesting thing about this flight is that it will actually be carrying cargo, even though it is just a test flight. It will be carrying cargo as well as delivering it back. According to Mike Suffredini, the Dragon will carry 521 kilograms, or about 1,150 pounds, of cargo to the ISS and return with 660 kilograms, which is about 1,450 pounds. And that will return in the Pacific Ocean after a good two weeks or so at station. Sorry, what are they returning? Are they returning samples that they've already collected from previous science experiments that are being conducted on ISS right now, or just uh, is it just dummy material, or, or what? According to Josh Byerly, a NASA spokesperson, the cargo is comprised of mostly low-value items such as food, water, and clothing to supplement supplies delivered this week aboard Europe's ATV. So, Sawyer, I'll put it to you. Given the fact that SpaceX has got a fairly interesting you know, track record of success thus far, what do you think is going to happen late April, early May? I'm thinking that there will be a successful docking and i'm guessing that it won't be without its flaws you know um there have been items that have tried to dock to the station that they've had problems with the automated docking system they've had it station keep and then dock later after they troubleshooted the problems but based on the success of their first one where they were the first private company to actually launch and recover their capsule 
I have a feeling they have a really good chance. I mean, you and I have seen the rocket. We haven't seen yeah. I've seen the returned capsule. We haven't seen the new one, but we have seen the rocket itself. And based on its previous reliability of one flight, I mean, one flight isn't saying much, but the fact that their first major flight regarding the Dragon was a success, it, it can only be a good sign as to this next test flight. And my prediction is is that it will dock successfully and hopefully return successfully as well, because that they prove they can do. Yeah, it's, if we can get a return capacity going, I think that's really the key right now since we, unfortunately, are... Our three, uh, as somebody characterized them over the weekend, our three, three little white doves, um, Discovery, uh, Atlantis, and Endeavor, are being uh, decommissioned. Um, we don't have a, you know, an upmass capability, but we also don't have a downmass capability anymore. The, the Dragon will give us that. So uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Hopefully everything goes well because if this does work, you know, okay, fine. You know, we, we still have the hoopla and all the history about it. Okay, commercial space, and I can already see. You know, because uh, don't get me started with, with with the religious factions between old space and new space, which gets on my nerves. But um, this is good for the ISS. Bottom line, if this works. And anything right now that's good for the ISS, that's that's going to go ahead and, and make life on board there a lot better, um, I'm all for. Um, again, I'm, I'm go SpaceX because it, it means uh, really good stuff for the International Space Station going forward. And let me just clarify that they did not give a go for launch. They gave a go to proceed towards the current launch date. There are still software verifications that are needed. Uh, before officials can give a final approval for the mission. And we will keep an eye on that. Unfortunately, our next episode will be out uh, after the scheduled launch date of the Falcon 9. However, you can keep up with our updates on our Twitter account, twitter.com slash TalkingSpace. I just want to add something in here, because... SpaceX itself, you know, they, they don't have the NASA budget to necessarily rely on, but just taking a look at the budget, in fact, this is an interesting article that I saw on Reddit. Uh, it took a look at pages from the official NASA budget release from NASA.gov, and a look at the TSA budget, which I wish Mark was here so he could hear this, even though he's FAA. But the uh, security that you see at airports, according to the Department of Homeland Security gets about $4 billion more than space exploration in the 2012 budget. You could go ahead and you can say that, you know, you want to be safe on aircraft and you want to make sure that, you know, somebody isn't bringing anything nasty on board an aircraft that might hurt the, the aircraft while you're there or hurt others on board. But, you know, again, this this goes part and parcel to the question are we spending the money wisely? I mean, I'll I'll go take a quote um, from a gentleman by the name of Jim Adams, who uh, is you know, might be known in some circles. He's uh, with uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and he he made an interesting statement during Space Up Houston. Um, he made an interesting comment saying that uh, there's the amount of fraud that is running rampant in both Medicare and Medicaid is about five times that of the NASA budget. So if we crack down on fraud, okay, fine, somebody would say, well, you know, put it toward um, deficit reduction. Okay, fine. Um, that's always going to be there. But, you know, I, we're going to go ahead and try to 
you know, solve the solve the country's problems and all this, and and that that's a that's a noble thing to do. But we've got to, the country's also got to continue to do great things and and inspire its its populace. And NASA does that. And if, as I believe, I'll quote Neil deGrasse Tyson, he said, it's, you know, a great country does great things and inspires its people to do great things. So um, I can't think of a better outlet than NASA to do that. All right. So while we're talking about budget, we mentioned a little bit about uh, space station and ISS and the amount that goes towards that. But there's some concerns regarding what the ISS is doing. And Gene, if you could tell us a little bit about that for your final story. Yeah, I saw this over the weekend and I'm like, well, this is a load of tripe. Um, And this might be an actually a pretty good lead in for what we're going to hear in a few minutes. Uh, There was an article, I guess, in the Orlando Sentinel that I saw. Uh, saying that uh, doubts linger about the space station's scientific potential, um, saying that, uh, you know, uh, it quotes Bill Gerstenmaier saying that uh, uh, the ISS has now entered an intensive research phase and uh, had said that, uh, you know, he was trying to, f- to defend the uh, $1.5 billion the agency spends on the ISS, but a lot of doubts apparently linger in the minds of some. Uh, they say that more than a quarter of the space that uh, NASA has put in for experiments on board the ISS is empty, um, and the article questions the value of the research on board, saying that it's just simply directed toward human habitation and long-term uh, spaceflight duration and so on. Well, it goes on to say that uh, – uh, it, it talks a little bit about the uh, the organization that was built a while back ago to help NASA utilize the International Space Station, a nonprofit group called the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space, or CASIS, uh, to manage um, the uh, the, nas- the, uh, the the ISS National Laboratory and find new experiment opportunities. Um, <clears throat> first, to say that it only f- yeah it does focus on uh, human habitation and spaceflight. Um, that's what it's there for. It's there to figure out if we can survive on a long-term spaceflight for for periods of time. If we can go out to Mars, if we can go out to 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 other planets, and so on. But there are things that spaceflight does to the human body, and uh, that we need to go ahead and figure out why these things happen. And um, if we go ahead and figure out why these things happen, then maybe, just maybe, we could go ahead and solve some problem, some medical problems back here on Earth. Uh, there, there's there, there's so many applications. I mean, I could go. I mean, if you guys want, you know, take a look at the the NASA spinoffs book um, that's online. That's online uh, at at nasa.gov in a in a PDF format. Um, there's so many things going on that have direct applications here. So don't think that, that, that what you're, what's going on on the ISS does not have an impact here. And we'll have some more stories about that in the future. Yeah. I mean, it would be really great. You know, we've once talked to somebody about international space station research and what they've been doing up there. And it would be great, you know, if we could get an update from them and hear from them again on some of the current uh, projects that they're actually working on on board the International Space Station and show what they're really doing up there. Well, now you know what, what Mark Ratterman's been up to. 
Well, Mark happened to get an interview for us with the International Space Station Associate Program Scientist, Tara Rutley. We've spoken with her before about some items going on on board the International Space Station, and Mark sat down on the phone with her and got some information on what's currently going on aboard the International Space Station. So, Mark, take it away. This is Mark Ratterman with Talking Space. Our guest is Dr. Tara Rutley, the Associate Program Scientist with the International Space Station Program Science Office at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Rutley, welcome. Actually, welcome back to Talking Space. I'm so glad to be back. I know it's been a really long time. so quickly. It's crazy. I first met you April 29th on the launch attempt for STS-134 at it. Kennedy Space Center, and that launch attempt was just that. It was an attempt, and uh, 134 actually launched later on in May, but I had the opportunity to talk to you for 15 minutes or so, and I knew at that point that uh, it would be great to keep up with you, which we haven't done near enough of, so what I, know. <laughs> I think what? Yeah, I think it's just before you know it, a year has gone by, and it's crazy, what can you tell us about science research and the ISS and all of the things that go on in your world, uh, oh, past, present, yeah. future? Yeah, so one year later, we're busier than ever. I think the last time I talked to you guys, I had plenty to talk about, but these days, it takes me even a little bit longer to organize my thoughts because there's so much going on. Um, our, our little office is actually growing with the transition from space station vehicle assembly to, uh, you know, the research component now, and, and all eyes are on research, and all eyes are on what that laboratory can do for us, and so um, it's an interesting thing to be in, I should say as a scientist, it's an interesting thing to be in my position, because um, I've seen over the last year to this transition from vehicle, thinking about things in space in terms of vehicles and launches, and now looking at it as a laboratory of science culture and it's not something that the whole NASA community is exactly used to like laboratory type science laboratory science takes time and and um, and it's a different type of thinking it's a different type of approach even inside of our or our um, own organizations the engineers are uh, we're realigning ourselves and engineering and manifesting in the numbers people and the in the science, people are all just kind of realigned around this fact that we now have our focus is on managing a scientific laboratory down at the very core and managing the research portfolio and being the most use that we can out of space. And so we've been really, really busy. And it's a really tough message as I, as I travel around and I talk to a lot of people. It's a tough message to convey because, you know, the idea of, of science, 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 people want to understand it, and um, but they don't quite get a lot of it. So, so my message as I go around is science is cool, science is sexy. And I know you may not see immediate gratification as you would with like a launch fire vehicle, but um, but we have had things come across and we do have good stories to tell. Um, and and we've been really busy. And so one of the big efforts we've been working on in the last year is trying to find a way to take some of the more significant results uh, that have huge value from space station and and boil it all down to um, a format that is readable by everyone. And we did that by taking all, all of some good research results, writing them up in the form of stories, and putting them all in one place that you can find on, um, if you go to nasa.gov forward slash ISS dash science, 
in the left-hand column, you'll see a click for benefits. And um, this is our uh, Space Station Science Research and Technology page. And if you click on benefits, it's a new web page. It basically highlights in stories for the entire International Space Station Partnership some of the benefits that we have already seen that have come directly from space station research investigations. And so we've broken it down in terms of benefits to education and benefits uh, through Earth observation and, and disaster response. So, for example, um, um, one of the things you might see if you go and look at uh, the, the Earth observation, you'll go and read several stories about photographing the Earth and why having astronauts in the loop as actual part of Earth photography is beneficial in terms of um, trying to capture just the right moments at the speeds that, that, that we're orbiting, you know, they're orbiting and they can capture just the right moments, certain uh, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, floods. There's that. Um, there's, um, there are stories about um, impacts to uh, students across the globe. There are stories regarding brain surgery, uh, water cleanup, purification. Uh, bone, um, drug production, vaccine development. And so all kinds of things. I, the biggest question I get is what Space Station done to me so far through its research. And so we, we all across the partnership, including our Russian partners, um, we, we pulled all these stories together, posted them on our website. And so now they're available for the public to go read. And that's just as of, I think, uh, may have come out just three or four weeks ago. So it's brand new. And we're really, really, really excited about that. And, uh, and so I would encourage folks to go and, and check that out because uh, it's a really fascinating uh, collection of stories. And, and it's updating, too. We're going to be updating it regularly. And that's interesting. You said you've been really busy this past year. And, of course, it makes sense because Space Station went from construction to being complete. And now yeah. it's time for the research to, you know, have more and more crew time available for that. And, that's uh, right. And that's what they're doing. They're busy as we are up there. <laughs> We're busy down here, and they're as busy up there implementing it. And, uh, you know, and the crew um, is definitely, I get regular phone calls with the crew office, you know, making sure that, that they are understanding what they're being trained to do in terms of research, and they're very diligent about getting it done. And um, and so it's a new culture for science, uh, you know, on Space Station. It, it should be. It's a laboratory, but it's definitely you can see the tides change. <laughs> so it's yes. kind of nice. And I'm, I just happen to be right in the middle of it, and I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. Because we've had, actually since the start of Space Station, Expedition Zero, since the very beginning, we've had, until now, Expedition 30, we've done over, oh, geez, nearly, well, nearly 1,300 investigations so far, representing 65 countries around the world and 1,300 scientists about, roughly. So even in the period of assembly, we um, we had we had plenty going on, and now that we're in Expedition 29 and 30, we've right now got nearly 200 investigations happening just in this period of time. So at any one time, you know, there's automated investigations happening, there's crew-tended experiments happening, there's external payloads doing this thing, and so it's going on multiple different. <laughs> any one time, you could have a whole list of things happening. Could you tell me, uh, this is something that uh, I know I don't have the right picture on, but thinking about your office and an announcement that came out last year about uh, CASIS, the Center for Advancement of Science in Space, uh -huh. what, are the, what are the differences? What do you do versus what are they going to be doing as they, as they gear up to, uh, to work from Cape Kennedy? Oh, yeah. So they, um, they are uh, the nonprofit organization that was selected 
uh, to manage, by NASA to manage the National Laboratory Research Portfolio. So there are different research portfolios here in the U.S. Uh, uh, that can be, that are part of the space station program. And the first one is our NASA research portfolio. And this is the NASA funded research, you know, that comes from the government. And, um, and it, it's focused on mainly the investigations that are pertaining to uh, human exploration of space, because that is advancement of human exploration of space is, is what NASA's goals um, surround. It's all about NASA. And so, um, so that would be things like the human research program and some of the materials and um, exploration technology development and things like that. And so that's NASA's side. And it's managed by NASA, run by NASA. You, you see the NASA research announcements that come out every so often uh, looking for investigators to come in and take that money and do good things with it in space station research. And then there's this national laboratory um, designated that Congre- uh, designation that Congress gave to the space station back in 2005. Congress saw value in this laboratory, as we have other national laboratories around the U.S., but this is the first one um, not on the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means that now the space station is open to other entities beyond, besides just NASA who want to um, bring their own funding for the research to the table and use space station as a platform by which to get um, their goals, um, meet their goals and their own research. And the point of that whole thing is really driven to benefit those of us here on the ground. And so NASA's research, the other NASA research, is for human exploration of space. Sure, there are benefits for the ground, but the National Lab has the primary goal of coming back and benefiting those of us here on the ground. Like, for example, the uh, National Institutes of Health has given uh, research awards to a few investigators to go and take the take the research and do research on space station for things like bone understanding osteoporosis and and, and immunity changes and cancer and, and and aging and things that are important to the National Institute of Health, trying to get at the goals of some of that, it would be to improve our benefits here on Earth. And so CASIS is the nonprofit organization managing the National Laboratory Research part of Space Station NASA. And that's a big um, misnomer. I can, I can see it when I read, like, the media articles that there's so much confusion. People think NASA gave its complete, you know, here we go, build a laboratory for space station, you know, and then we go and give up our entire research portfolio, let someone else manage, and that is not true. They just are different portfolios. NASA has its goals and its own funding, and then the National Lab part has separate funding that comes from different sources. It's different goals, and it's managed now by a nonprofit organization. Tell us about some science. Tell us some things maybe the, uh, in, in recent past or, or any time frame you like. What's, what's going on? What's going up? Yeah, so, so right now I think the big story, if you've been watching um, news or the TV, is the, the ATV docking. And um, ATV sent up uh, a couple of things and we have um, that have been transferred already. One would be the, uh, something called NanoRex. And NanoRex is a... Is a it's a neat facility that it's a commercial facility. It's through the National Lab effort, and um, it allows mostly its students to pay small, um, small little amounts of funding, put their investigation in these nice little blocks that fit, that are interchangeable, kind of plug and play, up into racks once you get on space station. So we sent there are several of those um, that went up on ATV three, and um, let's see, they contain student experiments, things like um, bronze and gold electroplating experiment. There's a little box there that uh, does some concrete mixing and setting. 
um, some bacterial growth and antibiotic resistance and plant growth and um, electromagnetic field experiments. And these are all student-designed. And um, they're up there and uh, just were installed um, a couple days ago. And then um, something that folks don't know, think a lot about, uh, you know, with the ATV, you can send things up. You don't get things back, right, because ATV burns up on our entry. So, but, but we do have an investigation that is actually going to take place on ATV return, and that is the Reber, which is Reentry Breakup Recorder. And this is a neat little pod recorder. It sits inside the ATV vehicle and tracks things, tracks its telemetry and things like um, acceleration, um, trajectory, um, temperature. It's basically tracking what happens to the ATV upon reentry as it breaks up. Because we're trying to understand true, there's never been actual true measurements of break, breakout material as it enters the atmosphere. You know, these vehicles, they re-enter so shallow. There's a shallow reje- uh, trajectory for re-entry. And some large pieces can actually get across and survive. <laughs> and, you know, land in places where we're, we're just, you know, sometimes they're a little bit unpredictable. Most of the time, it's not a problem, but in a, in a few instances, we do have large pieces of debris coming through. And and so um, this is a neat investigation because it's kind of it's kind of simulating what actually happens to this breakup stuff. This is stuff you know ATVs just falling apart, and and this reaper will survive reentry and send telemetry the entire way. In fact, the first time it has, because it was a third trip uh, when it, when ATV comes back later this year. But the first, I think the very first time it happened, you know, it, it actually kept uh, transmitting for days after it landed in the ocean. And so, <laughs> so that was totally unexpected. And um, so, so it's actually collecting data there, during reentry, and it's going to give us some pretty neat information um, regarding uh, breakup. We talk about all of these. We talk about the ATV3 return with Reber, and it brings up the question: you know, we have a space station and People know, we know how we get things up. We have the HTV vehicle. We have the ACV vehicle, partner vehicles. We've also used Progress and um, some Soyuz. And Soyuz can bring a few of the samples back. Science sample return is the big question now in everybody's mind. And so we're excited about what's coming up, which will be um, a SpaceX demo. It's another one of their demonstrations. It's their second demonstration flight. It's our first vehicle now that can actually give us return capabilities, science capabilities. It's, it doesn't burn up on reentry. So um, we're excited now. And this is a demo. And I think when people are thinking, you know, looking at this vehicle, big time people are thinking, wow, we got NASA's getting, you know, a commercial launch vehicle. It's a big demonstration flight. But I, and so that's kind of the big idea. But I think a lot of people don't associate it, this flight with having actual investigations on board or research on board. We do have an investigation going up, and this is the another NanoRacks investigation. So it's another um, module that um, is, has a, several, I think, up to 15 different student experiments inside of it that they all that these students wrote proposals for, competed against hundreds of others, and were selected. And they they uh, range from spider egg development to uh, pure water purification and and uh, fermentation of grape juice to make wine and microgravity. And so uh, those are going up, and, and they're going up with a cold bag. So they're going to be, um, they're not just ambient, they need to be cold. And so these are important things. Um, they're going to give us an idea of how these payloads feel when they get there, right, and, and what happens to these things. They'll stay on, on ISS, but SpaceX is actually going to bring some research home, too. A couple of um, 
sample cartridge assemblies of materials that were developed inside of the um, materials science racks on orbit. I'm going to bring home some um, some liquid polymer sample uh, research, uh, some samples that came from some of the research on orbit, some data, and some hardware associated with some um, flame experiments that we that we just recently completed too. So so there there's there's hardware going up for research. There's hardware coming home, and um, to me that's an important story. But it may actually maybe get overlooked in the big hype of hey we've got an actual vehicle now NASA produced you know the U.S. has a vehicle now that can make it to space and, and on our own and in dock and, and come home. So we're real excited about that and uh, and and so it's it's time we're ready. Other than that, we um, recently gave a uh, a kind of an overview of some of the upcoming increments all the way out as far as later this year. One super cool thing to watch for is um, later on HTV3 this summer, JAXA, our Japanese partners, will be setting up an aquatic habitat. So it's actually going to be um, a fish tank uh, with water and uh, and filters and environmental uh, support capabilities. And they're going to launch, uh, and there will be cameras, actually, that you can um, transmit information to the Earth. And uh, they're going to launch up after that, after the whole aquarium checkout early next year, they're going to launch up a couple of uh, madaka or zebrafish and um, and look at, you know, grow them through different generations on space station in a microgravity environment and kind of bring the samples home and look at the bone changes and the muscle changes and there are a series of investigations planned for this aquatic habitat. There's lots and lots uh, going on, tended, both crew tended and, and not tended by the crew. Some of it's automated. Um, some of it's controlled from the ground. A lot of the uh, one new... Um, Earth observation instrument uh, that's going to be going up on station um, on HTV3 is called ISERV, and that is something that is going to be a camera directed out of the window observation research facility at space station, and it'll take pictures of disasters as they occur and um, as as they can be uh, viewed from orbit. But the crew won't be doing that; it'll be controlled from the ground. So um, it's going to be a brand new capability that's going to uh, really go far in coordinating disaster response efforts. And then I didn't even go into detail about all the human research because <laughs> that is quite a boatload, too. And uh, that, is, out of all the investigations and all the experimentation that the crew does, human research is definitely um, the more time-intensive for, uh, for, for reasons that are probably obvious. And just, you know, when, when you get human subjects in space, that's a, a resource that you don't regularly have access to. So there are lots of things that we still need to understand about the human body, that um, we it, it and how it reacts in the microgravity environment, or how it adapts, I should say, to the microgravity environment, what it means long term. Um, we still don't understand several parts of the systems of the human body that we really need to get a good grasp on for advancing us beyond human exploration in space, uh, for beyond LEO uh, missions. So. Uh, definitely loaded, and, and then I didn't even talk about the details about educational payloads. There's so many student competitions going on right now, and if you go to that nasa.gov forward slash ISS-science, you can click on the left-hand column uh, about opportunities, and if you're a student or uh, a teacher, there's information for you there about some of the competitions that are coming up or that are happening. The opportunities are 
are just out there. I can't even keep up anymore like I could in the old days. <laughs> um, when I first met you back in uh, April of last year, I remember asking you, and I remember your excitement in talking about AMS2 that was going to go up on Endeavor. Any news from the AMS2 collaboration about the instrument and the observations since it was installed? Yeah. Right. It's in, it's installed. It's a it's taken tons and tons of data. It's getting billions of hits, and in, in, uh, and no, they're being very quiet about the analysis. <laughs> they, yeah, I think I think they've got enough data to last them years and years and years already. I think um, there's been no. They're kind of mums about it right now, so there's been nothing, um, you know, significant that's been announced yet. If it's if it's happening internally, they're just trying to analyze things as they come. So uh, there's been no release of information yet, but since it was developed by a Nobel laureate, uh, he probably has his own ideas and plans for <laughs> a rollout of data. Um, but it's still my it's one of my favorites. I still, in, in fact, I'm. You know, we have a blog at that website at nasa.gov forward slash ISS-science, and we take turns writing blog entries, and I'm working on one right now about why I think AMS is still so cool. You know, you hear about dark matter and dark energy, but just personally, I think um, philosophically, it's it's mind-boggling. It's just so overwhelming, and, um, and so getting to the point of trying to figure out where we came from and the origin of our universe and who's right and who's wrong, and, and maybe we learn something totally different fascinates me. So, I yeah, I'm sitting on the edge. I follow them on Twitter when I can and, and try to see what, what kind of new updates have come out. But uh, so far, all I hear is that it's taking a lot of data and it's collected a lot of uh, billions and billions of uh, cosmic ray hits already. So, I remember Dr. Ting speaking during a, a briefing about AMS-2. I got the impression at that point, he says, that we're not going to be rushed to make any announcements. We're going to be very sure That's of right. what we're seeing, and when we have something to tell you, we'll tell you. Because the press was asking, well, how soon before some real earth-shattering? He says, I can't tell you. It could it could take some time, he said, but we're going to be certain. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you for your time. I've kept you for quite a while this evening, and... Uh, Love to to talk some more. Oh, um, uh, sure. Any uh, any closing thoughts other than for everything you've been telling us for the last twenty <laughs> thirty minutes? I don't have any closing thoughts because I could go on and on and on and on. But um, definitely, just want folks to keep an eye out and just remember, you know, science takes time. It's a different it's a different you know culture, and uh, we have just a wide range of different disciplines that are happening on the space station right now it's fine. it's coming to realize its own potential and we're excited to work with the crew on getting these investigations started and we have hundreds planned for the remainder of the year and the manifest is is looking really busy for we do every five years out so um keep an eye out it's it's it is human exploration and that's what space station is but even even um, a cool part of that, to me, being the scientist, is the fact that it's a laboratory. So, so we're going to learn. I'm just excited about all the potential. We're on your side, and I think our listeners are too. Well, I want to oh, say thanks. I want to say thanks to NASA for the great days ahead. I know that there's a lot coming, and uh, Tara, I want to thank you for the great information you've shared with us about science in space. It's exciting to talk with you, and I really want to thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. It's always so fun talking with you. We've got to do it more frequently. <laughs> we There's so much more to report. <laughs> we certainly can, and that's much appreciated by 
Talking Space and our listeners on Astronomy FM that uh, that the show is also played on. So, well, I have to say thank you for keeping up with space based and science. Um, that that is where you know it is a laboratory. So thank you for you guys for being so diligent and and wanting to know more about it's the a, research. It's only going to get better. That's right. Thank you. Thank you again as well, Mark and Tara Rutley, for the interview. And, of course, that brings our episode to its conclusion. Thank you again for joining us, Gene McCulka. Oh, this has always been fun, Sawyer. Sorry it was just, just us two, but uh, uh, our, our special guest will be coming back soon. So that, that it's all good. Exactly. Now, programming reminder, we will not be releasing a new episode next week. So on April 25th, there will not be a new episode. However, we will be coming back on May 2nd with part one of who knows how many of (laughs) our coverage of the retirement of the space shuttles. So we've got some great things coming up, and that's why we will be off next week. So we hope you enjoy your week off. We will see you in two weeks. But as always, for every time in between that you don't have us, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 